We're in a series on the Minor Prophets, and we come to the prophet Joel, and let us, as before we read the scripture from Joel chapter 2, by the way, the the sermon title is Joel Canceling the Apocalypse. Let us ask God's blessing this morning. Oh, gracious God, we pray to you this morning that you would show us your ways, that you would change our hearts, that you would lead us into a closer relationship with you, that you would convict us of our sins, and that you would give us hope in times of despair. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and then we'll skip down to the end of that chapter, verses 28 through 32. So hear now the word of the Lord from the prophet Joel. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. And verses 28 through 32. Then afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes." Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. It is a truth universally acknowledged that in our internet age, famous movie quotes are destined to become memes. We've all seen them. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Sean Bean's famous line from the Lord of the Rings, meme. Then there was that line, release the Kraken, from Liam Neeson in Clash of the Titans, meme. And of course, there is Idris Elba's famous line from the 2013 film Pacific Rim, today we are canceling the apocalypse. Now, Idris Elba Elba is a very accomplished actor and a fine and handsome man, Uh, but that movie, Pacific Rim, not his cinematic masterpiece by far. It wasn't his worst film, though. He also had the grave uh, disfortune to be um, cast in the movie Cats, uh, which was a horrible, uh, horrible film. Too bad for him, but... uh, So Pacific Rim wasn't his worst film, but it's certainly forgettable, except for that famous line, canceling the apocalypse, which became, of course, a meme. Now, I won't bore you with all the plot details, the thin plot details of Pacific Rim, but this is the basic story. There are a bunch of kaijus, uh, think Godzilla's, and these monsters are going around, and they're going to destroy the earth, and so the only way to save the world from the apocalypse is a bunch of Uh, People who are going to drive around giant mechs and and kill the kaijus. And at one point in the film, when all hope seems to be lost, 
uh, Idris Elba's character gains together, gathers together all of these mech pilots, and there's this great scene, this kind of inspiring speech where he declares, today there is not a man nor woman in here that shall, not, shall stand alone. Not today. Today we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are canceling the apocalypse. He says it in a much better way with his accent than I do. That's the canceling the apocalypse speech. And I think in many ways, that really is what the prophecy of Joel is ultimately about. In these series, kind of one-offs on each of these 12 minor prophets, I'm trying to encapsulate in a very distilled way what the prophet was talking about, what the main concern was. And here I think it is that very thing, how to cancel the apocalypse. So this morning, come with me as we enter into Joel's prophecy to discern what this ancient prophet has to say to us today. And the way we'll walk through that is that very simple outline of looking first at the prophet. Who was this person? What was the world like when Joel was prophesying? We'll look at the prophet. Then secondly, we'll look at the problem. That is, what was the main concern, the main problem that Joel was sent by God to address? So we'll look at the problem. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the prescription. That is, how did the prophet say to fix the problem? What was the prescribed remedy or solution to the prophet, the problem the prophet was sent to address. So easy outline, the prophet, the problem, the prescription. Let's look first at the prophet. So what do we know about the prophet Joel? Well, honestly, we know very little, so this will be uh, quite brief. We almost know almost nothing about him at all. Only thing we really know is that perhaps he was the first or the earliest of the minor prophets as far as writing. But we know a little bit more about his world, about what was going on in Israel. In fact, we know a a great deal, if you will, about what was going on at this time. And particularly one historical fact we know for sure, as Kyle mentioned in in his sermon this morning, Israel at this time had just suffered a massive national calamity, a catastrophe happened for Israel, and that came in the form of locusts. Joel speaks about it. He speaks about the devastating nature of this calamity experienced by Israel. In verse 4 of the first chapter, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, the locust wiped out everything. Their crops were gone. Their economy was wiped out. There was famine and there was despair in the nation of Israel. Israel had suffered an apocalypse, an apocalyptic event in the form of locusts. Now, I'm guessing everyone in this room, maybe with the exception of one or two people, most of you don't know anything about locusts or have never seen locusts or never had a concern about that in your life. We're not familiar with their destructive power. Here is a description from National Geographic about the power of locusts. A desert desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. Each locust, each one, 
can eat its weight in plants each day, so a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. To put it in a context, a swarm of the size of Paris can eat up the same amount of food in one day as half the population of France. Locusts are devastating, particularly to a society that was agriculturally based. And that's how Joel describes the impact on Israel. It was devastating. Verse 10 of Joel 1, the fields are devastated, the ground mourns, for the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil fails. And it was of the like, this event, of something that they, it was unparalleled in their experience. They had never had an event like this before. And Joel starts out his prophecy in verse 2 of the first chapter speaking about that in a rhetorical question. He, he brings this up. He says, Hear this, O elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? And the answer, of course, is no. We've never experienced an apocalypse like this in the form of a locust invasion. We've never had such a catastrophe. That was what happened in Israel. That was the context into which Joel was sent to prophesy. But God did not send him to Israel to address the problem of locusts. That was past tense, right? That was history. It had already happened. Joel was sent to Israel to deal with a bigger problem. And that brings us to point number two, the problem. So what was the problem that Joel was sent to address? Well, it's very simple. It was a different, a future, a more devastating event, apocalyptic event, that Joel refers to by the nomenclature, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. Joel 1.15 is an example. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Joel was sent to address the day of the Lord, and the locusts were merely an early warning system of this. They were a microcosm, a mini-apocalypse. They were a wake-up call to something even more grave and devastating to come, the day of the Lord, Judgment Day, the Apocalypse. Now, while we have very little familiarity with locusts, as Christians, we have a lot of familiarity with the concept of the apocalypse or apocalyptic thinking, right? We have this ingrained into our knowledge as Christians, as Bible believers. In fact, historically, in the Western world, at least, Christianity has brought that into the mainstream of thinking, the idea of an apocalypse. It emerged through Christian reflection and theology and philosophy and art. The idea in Christianity that time is linear, it's a line, and there is a point at the end of the line. There is an end. It's not circular. It's not infinite. There's a line with an end to it. It's all coming to a point at the end. And in the 20th century, this kind of apocalyptic thinking in Christianity grew into other forms, particularly in the late 20th century. 
more and more speculation, right? There were people writing about particular historic events and symbols, the European Union, black helicopters, Soviet invasion, the War of Gog and Magog. Hale Lindsey wrote that book, that best-selling book in the 1970s, The Late Great Planet Earth. Christians have always been kind of obsessed and have had in their mentality the idea of the apocalypse. So we are very familiar with that. And that's not all that interesting. Most of the things we talk about with the apocalypse are utter nonsense. Um, They're kind of televangelist kind of things. But what I do find fascinating, uh, what I do find interesting, is how prevalent apocalypticism is in our culture among secularists. Uh, It's as if Christianity, as it declines in the West, there has not been a corresponding decline in belief in the end, in the apocalypse. In fact, it's just the opposite. Secularists also are apocalyptic and, and growing ever more so. Everything in our age now is apocalyptic. Everything is pronounced in that sense. You see it in our movies, right? The whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? The MCU, all these films. What happens in each one? There's some type of event that's going to bring the end and we need to stop the apocalypse. Those movies could be rightly called the mythology of our secular age, right? This is how we express our mythology. It's not just in our movies, it's in our politics as well. Everything is apocalyptic. And the phrase that our politicians love to use is not the day of the Lord, it is the phrase existential threat. That phrase has grown in usage in this 21st century, and particularly in the last four or five years, existential threat. John McWhorter, who's a professor at Columbia University, wrote an article in the, in the Atlantic in 2019 entitled The Astonishing Rise of Existential Threats. And he talks about this, the frequency of use. He's a linguist. He's talking about how this tagline, you know, we used to talk, he would, in the article he talks about, in the 20th century, presidents would talk about, we have this threat. You know, the, Reagan talked about the threat of the Soviet Union. But somehow in this century, we've added this existential threat to it, this idea of an apocalyptic nature to everything. And McWhorter writes in an article, he says, Existentialism is now one of the key shibboleths of being, of sounding educated. Related to this is the sheer drama in the term with its flavor of darkness. Existential threat is apocalyptic. It's the day of the Lord. It's the end of all things. If you don't vote for me, it's going to be the end of the world. It's my belief that all people, and this is based on Scripture, it's not my opinion, that all people are inherently religious, that we all know that there is a God and that some of us acknowledge it and some of us suppress it, but we all know it. And I think there is this thing even in our secular age, even as the suppression of the truth of God is there in our culture, deep down we all know the end is coming. That we have an innate sense that the clock is ticking 
We go on with our lives, but we feel it. It's just there beneath the surface. We feel that inexorable march toward the last day, the end of all things, the dot at the end of the line. We're all waiting for Gabriel to blow his trumpet. In Christian tradition, the belief was that the apocalypse, that the day of the Lord, that the end of all things would be commenced with the blowing of the trumpet of Gabriel. In an article in a journal from Baylor University, Brett Younger wrote this article entitled, The End of It All. And in there, he uses this illustration of Gabriel, particularly a statue of Gabriel that's atop a church in New York City. He doesn't identify the exact church. I think it might be the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. I'm not sure. But he talks about this statue on top of this church where the angel Gabriel is perched and the trumpet he's holding, it's just, just close to his lips. Not quite there yet, but it's close. And he writes this in that article. His horn is lifted to his mouth, ready to blow a mighty blast to announce God's coming day after day. Gabriel stands ready. Warmed by the summer sun, frozen by winter sleet, year after year goes by, but no mighty blast, not even a tentative toot. The streets of the city below are crawling with traffic, lined with apartments and businesses. There is birth, death, love, conflict, and a thousand shattered hopes between dawn and sunset every day. And then he concludes... To most of the people on the street, Gabriel must seem silly. But if we listen carefully, we may hear Gabriel clearing his throat. If we listen carefully, we may hear distant hoofbeats, the roll of thunder, and the sound of a choir warming up. What's he saying? He's saying what the prophet Joel said. He's saying what Scripture says. The day is coming, and deep down we all know it. The prophet Joel knew it, and God sent him to Israel to proclaim to them about this existential threat. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. And that warning that Joel gave to Israel is a warning to us as well because their problem is our problem as well. For beloved, as we well know, the day of the Lord is coming. We know that from the Scriptures. The Scriptures reveal to us that in the fullness of time, in the, in the flourishing of the organic unfolding of the Scriptures, the hidden things are revealed to us. And we are told in the New Testament that that day of the Lord is indeed the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is attested to throughout Scripture. Listen to Peter, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. In other words, Peter is saying the apocalypse is coming. There is an end of the line. And just like for Israel, with the locusts, every calamity, every national catastrophe, every pandemic, every war, 
It's just a mini apocalypse, a warning sign, a wake-up call that something greater is coming. And if we listen carefully, we may hear Gabriel clearing his throat. If we listen carefully, we may hear distant hoofbeats, the roll of thunder, and the sound of a choir warming up. Because the day of the Lord is coming. The apocalypse is coming. And so the question comes home, right? The pressing question is, what do we do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? Can we indeed cancel the apocalypse? And that brings us to our last point this morning, and that is the prescription. How and what does the prophet say about solving the problem? And thankfully, Joel says, we can There is something we can do about this existential threat. The prescription. So I already shared with you last week that I really enjoyed my vacation in the Adirondacks in Lake Placid. I love the Adirondacks. I love the terrain. I love the the rocks. I love the evergreens. I love everything about that place. It's beauty. And during my recent trip, uh, it kind of dawned on me that I wanted to consider other ways to appreciate and engage with the natural beauty of God's creation in that place. And so I decided that a good option would be to take up hiking. There's all these trails around in the Adirondacks, so I decided to explore how to hike. And so I did what, every, um, you know, what I always do. I go to Amazon and try to find a book on it, right? <laughs> how do you do this? So I searched Amazon for a good beginner's book on how to hike, and you know I'm kind of a um, glass half empty kind of guy. I'm kind of a worst possible scenario kind of guy. So I decided upon a book about hiking for beginners with this title. The title of the book I bought is How to Hike and Not Die. If you'd like to read it, it's written by Penny Allenwood. Penny, you owe me uh, something for this plug. How to Hike and Not Die. And it has chapters like Dress for the Weather, Know Your Limits, What to Do if I See a Bear. You know that joke about a bear, right? When you're, you don't have to be the fastest person. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to outrun a bear. You just have to be outrun the other person. It's kind of idea. So what do you do when you see a bear? But the book lives up to its title, right? It's telling you, here's how to do it without dying, how to hike and not die. And in a sense, really, the book of Joel is doing a very similar thing with the day of the Lord. Joel prescribes, he tells us, how to experience the day of the Lord and not die. How to cancel the apocalypse. And his book really has three chapters in it. He says, here are the three things you need to do If you are going to avoid the apocalypse, and the first one is simply this, lament. Lament. Acknowledge your sin and mourn it. Joel says this in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. What's he saying When a Hebrew was going through a a catastrophe, something awful happened in his or her life, they would 
tear their clothes. Job does this in the book of Job. Tear their clothes as a sign of their mourning over what is wrong. And here Joel says what's wrong, what God says through Joel, is your sin. And I don't want you just to tear your clothes. I want you to tear your heart. I want you to rend your heart because I don't really care about your external religion. I want your heart. And what I want you to see in your heart is that you are a sinner. That you have transgressed the laws of God. So chapter number one is to lament and to recognize that you are a sinner, to acknowledge and mourn that sin that resides in our heart. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Lament. Chapter two in that book on how to experience the day of the Lord and not die is that we must repent. We must repent. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from punishing. Who knows whether He will turn and relent? What's He saying there? He's saying after you have rent your heart, after you have acknowledged your sin, after you really feel remorse over it, then turn away from it. Turn to its opposite, its opposite polarity. Turn from sin to God. They are opposites like, like, like darkness and light. And so once you see that in yourself, once you acknowledge that and mourn over it, you're not left in your mourning. God says, turn to me. Change the trajectory of your life, the direction of your heart. Turn it Godwards. Repent. And then finally, in, Bo- in Joel's book on how to experience the day of the Lord and not die, he says we must call upon the name of the Lord. Verses 28-32, through 32, Then afterwards I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my Spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And then Joel says this, Then everyone... Note the universal. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you cancel the apocalypse? How do you live through the day of the Lord? You lament, you repent, you call on the name of the Lord, and there is assurance that you shall be saved. And that remains true for us today. You see it on the day of Pentecost. What happens on that day? It is the beginning of the apocalypse. The day of the Lord. Peter, of all places, on the day of Pentecost, goes to this kind of remote place in the book of Joel. And he basically says, I am preaching on this text this day. 
If you want to know more about that sense of the apocalypse on the day of Pentecost, I preached a sermon on Pentecost called Tongues of Fire, in which I basically exegeted it that very way that this is a day of judgment, the beginning of the day of judgment, the onset of the ticking clock of the day of the Lord. And Peter there preaches, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. This is the beginning of the last days. And he tells them about what Jesus has done and why Jesus was crucified. And the people listening as he preached, the scripture says they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter, what shall we do? How do we cancel the apocalypse? And Peter tells them, he says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lament, repent, call on the name of the Lord. That's how you survive the coming apocalypse. And it's really easy. It is that easy. God doesn't make it difficult to come to Him. And if you have not done those three things, if you have not lamented the sin in your life, if you have not repented of the sin in your life, if you have not called upon the name of the Lord, Now is the time because Gabriel stands with the trumpet near his lips. The day of the Lord is coming. Now one last point before I close. In this sermon, I noted the similarities between Christians and secularists when it comes to the apocalypse, right? We both have this idea of the end of all things. We're both, both religions, if you will, are apocalyptic. But there's a major difference between Christianity and secularism. For the secularist, the apocalypse is only bad. Because all there is is this life, this body, and this world. There's no transcendence, there's only imminence. But for the Christian, the apocalypse is not all bad. In fact, we believe in an apocalypse of hope. That there is something at the end and after the end, and it is God Himself that God wins in the end. That all is redeemed. That all we have messed up, this life and this body and this world, will be redeemed by our God. Christians believe in an apocalypse of hope. And I say that not to give you warrant to abandon your responsibilities to this life, this world, this creation, and this body. You have responsibilities before God to care and attend for all of those things. I'm not saying it so that you will abandon your responsibilities. Rather, I am saying it to you to give you hope in a world where there's short supply of it where every day we are told that there is an existential threat, where every day we are told it's going to get worse. God says to us, I am at the end of all things. There's hope even when it seems hopeless. Take a look at this painting. If you'd put up that slide there, Neil, for me. You see this painting up here? It's a painting by a German painter, Friedrich August Moritz Rich. It's a painting that bears the title Checkmate. And you can see what it depicts there, right? You can see 
that you have on the left there. This is Satan. And there's a chessboard. And there is a man, a believer, and he's losing. It's called checkmate. You look at that and it seems rather depressing. It's kind of like reading the newspaper, right? It looks like loss. Now there's a legend, a story of sorts around this painting, and I believe from my research that it is indeed grounded in truth. It's emerged in many preachers' sermons over the years. According to this legend, one day this painting was observed by a grand chess master, a grandmaster, I should say. And he stood there staring at that painting for a while, and after studying it and actually setting up the board and, and working through it, he came to the conclusion that it was not checkmate. And he showed through a series of moves how the man could still beat the devil. And Brett Younger uh, references this painting in the article I mentioned earlier from Baylor. And he writes this, he says, For years people came to the gallery and saw only hopelessness. And then one day a chess champion stood for hours looking at the chessboard. Finally he announced, it's a lie. The king still has moves left. And then he concludes, the biggest question, questions for all of us remain. Is the future still in God's hands? To what are we heading? Who will have the final word? What's going to happen? God is going to happen. God will triumph. God is at the end of it all. Beloved, I don't know what you are going through this morning. Well, with some of you, I do know. I do know what you're going through. And some of you feel a sense of hopelessness. Some of you feel that about our country, the direction we're headed. Some of you feel that about the church, the direction it's headed. Some of you feel that about the future of our planet and human civilization. Some of you feel that about a trial going on in your life right now. But no matter how bad it appears, beloved, the Scriptures tell us it ain't checkmate. It ain't checkmate. Because the day of the Lord is coming and God is at the end of it all. The King still has moves left. Believe it. Let's pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, help us this morning when our soul gives way to stand upon the solid rock of Christ, to call upon His name and to place our trust in Him, to believe that You are at the end of it all. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.